0: You can't see the picture real well here. This is an icon of the prophet Nahum, who I'm going to be talking about this morning. And uh, you can look this up later online. But This is supposedly, there's some debate on this, but this is supposed to be the uh, uh, tomb of Nahum the prophet uh, in northern Iraq. And uh, this is a very special place for a lot of Christians and a lot of Jews. But to really appreciate how important this place is, you've really got to understand the whole history of Assyria, which is the nation that Nahum goes and prophesies to. And uh, it should be a familiar nation to us because the capital city, the city that he prophesies against as sort of a symbol of the whole community is a city called Nineveh. We've already heard about Nineveh because that's where Jonah went as well. So, Assyria is this area, or was at the time, an area of northern Iraq or sort of southeastern Turkey, northwestern Iran, and northeastern Syria. Uh, though there were times when that empire was much, much larger than that. They were known in the days of the Old Testament prophets for their cruelty. In fact, there's a slogan about the Assyrian kings that they would say, or that was said often about them I destroyed, I devastated, and burned with fire. You find this inscribed on all kinds of stuff from the Assyrians. They were cruel. They were cruel. No mercy. Totally destroying cities, wrecking sacred sites, killing animals, killing children, burning entire cities to the ground. Known for impaling the leaders of the city out in public when they would go in and take over. Those that they let live were a lot of the craftsmen. They would not kill a lot of the people that would be a benefit to the empire. And they would take these people and strategically move them throughout the empire. So, okay, you're a good blacksmith. Well, we need a blacksmith in this town. And they would move you all over the place. This did two things. It helped build the empire and build the trade of the empire. But it also basically destroyed your culture. Because you would be in a town with maybe one or two other families, uh, and then over time, a couple generations, you would basically lose your heritage. You would not know who you were. Uh, In fact, in 722, Assyria did this to Israel. Uh, The nation, the nation of Israel, was divided into two: Judah on the bottom and Israel on the top. And Assyria came down, took over Israel, and just spread them out. Okay, spread them out among all these towns, and for generations. They did not know each other. Um, and it's, it's pretty very problematic. A lot of times uh, you didn't come back from that. Uh, your nation, your culture would be destroyed. Pretty amazing that Israel uh, was not like that. Uh, they would even really desecrate your irreligious um, your symbols. So the, the bones of the kings were often exiled too. They weren't left in their tombs. And uh, if you, they would leave some of your property sometimes if they wanted it. But never any of your symbols, never any of your temples, any of your key sites. This is the town that Jonah goes to. So we can kind of get an idea of why Jonah doesn't want to go there, right? Why would you want to go prophesy destruction to these people that are so cruel and also who are enemies of your people? Nobody's going to like that you went to try to give aid, tried to prophesy to these people who were so cruel. But amazingly, in the story of Jonah, they do. They turn around. They they have the king. Word gets the king about his message. And he orders a fast for the whole city of Nineveh. And Nineveh is turned over. It's changed. But it doesn't last. A generation, maybe two, Nineveh is kind of calm, but not in the long run. They're back to their cruel selves. And in 722, after Jonah comes, they attack Israel. And the ten tribes of Israel that made up that part of Israel, the northern part, were never ten tribes again. I mean, never were they able to go back and trace which original tribe they were from. Uh, a lot of people who are Jewish today try to do that. And at this moment, they really lose it. They can't go back much. They can't go back to before this. 150 years after Jonah comes, this prophet Nahum comes and speaks against Nineveh. Nahum's got a really fascinating name. His name really means comforter in Hebrew. But if you read Nahum, you wouldn't know that. Because there's not a lot of comfort in the book. It's all pretty harsh about how Nineveh, and and therefore Assyria, is going down. Nahum is some of the most passionate and most beautiful writing in all the Bible. It's really great poetry. Um, And in the Hebrew, it's even stronger poetry. But it's very harsh. So let me read the first 11 verses of Uh, Nahum to you. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, but Sean and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make complete, a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They will consume; like, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you can came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Ouch! Right. I'm willing to bet you've never heard a sermon on Nahum before. Right? This is just not light, fluffy, joyful stuff. We don't talk about. Nahum. What do we do with an angry and judgmental God? It's really not very politically correct. And it's not really that fun either. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars over history have, have brushed Nahum off as just, well, that's kind of a political letter, right? Nahum's a guy with all this nationalistic zeal, but that's not, that's not really how God is, is it? But I don't think we should just chalk the book up to ancient sentimentalities for darker and simpler times. I think Nahum has some important things to tell us about the nature of God. And I think it's right here in the first chapter that Nahum sort of poses his argument. Number one, we need to understand, and Nahum puts forth for us, that God has the right to be angry. I don't know if you know this or not, but when you read your Bible and you have the word Lord in the Old Testament, depending on how it's written, it might be either a general term for Lord, or if it's all caps, like it is in these verses, it's actually the word for God, Lord, Yahweh. It was the word that they weren't allowed to say. And so in, in, our, in your Bible right now, you go to different chapters of the Psalms, you're going to see Lord sometimes with all caps and sometimes the caps are smaller after the L. It's typed different than the rest of the text. He is using, Nahum is using the word Lord, Yahweh, the holy name that Moses gets. I am that I am from the burning bush. This is the God Nahum says gets to judge. The one who can control the storms and the clouds and the seas and the rivers that the mountains and the hills quake before him. We have to understand God has a right to get angry. God just does. Some translations say that God is a jealous God. That word could also be translated zealous. But I think actually jealous works pretty well. God has every right to be jealous when you treat other things as God instead of him as God. Okay? It's like, it like in a marriage. If somebody starts cheating on their spouse, the spouse has a right to be jealous. That's not, that's not a bad thing to be jealous if you have a right to be jealous. And God has a right to be jealous when we don't treat God as God. Or when, when like the Assyrians, people do whatever they want and abuse everybody else for their own purposes. God has every right to be jealous and zealous about that moment. In fact... We want God to get angry. We want God to get angry, right? Are we pleased when God, when we feel like God sits by and doesn't see cruelty happen? I mean, so many things have gone on in our world in the last couple weeks—from um, shootings to um, to riots to um, not even killing with a with a gun. You can control guns, maybe, but you can't control trucks, right? I mean, there's a, there's a huge amount of difficulty in our world today. Don't we get angry about that? Don't we think God should get angry and be aware of that? We, we understand somehow, deep down, that God should be outraged at bad things. The problem is we want to choose what God gets angry at, right? I like when God gets angry at bad things happening in the world. I don't like necessarily the idea that God gets angry at my attitude or the way I'm talking about somebody. Right? We like God's anger, but we like to aim it. It doesn't always work that way. We need to understand that God gets angry over the right things. Nahum makes this argument. He knows who his adversaries are. He knows the darkness they have done. Nahum calls them entangled. God knows that they... What that means is that they're wrapped up. Like, it's very hard to get rid of. You ever had to pull... Pulling weeds is one thing. You get get thorn bushes, or you get stuff that kind of weaves together... Then it's really hard to remove. There's almost no removing some of it. You've got to just chop it all out. That's the metaphor Nahum uses for the Assyrians. They, they're tangled up. They're entangled. God's going to have to take care of them. They plotted evil against the Lord. He knows what the Assyrians have done. And nobody, nobody in the prophet's day would have been like, nah, the Assyrians are okay. They were cruel and terrible to people. But here's the other side for Nahum. And this is a side I really want you to hear. God is slow to anger. That's the other thing Nahum says. God is slow to anger. God does not fly off the handle. God's not like some angry child throwing a hissy fit. God is slow to anger. He's got this sense of grace. He gives people time to repent. Time to turn around. And in fact, in the history here, we know... Jonah has already come. God has already reached out to these people. He's already given them a chance. 150 years later, we've got another prophet. God is long-suffering, patient, and good in the text. He gives chances to repent. But just because God is slow to anger doesn't mean God doesn't get angry. Okay? I have this... So my kids like to go to playgrounds. So we have different playgrounds in the area, and we've, we hit them all. Okay, so we'll pick a playground, and that's the playground we'll go to for the day. Uh, We even do this in the snow. We bundle up and just hit a playground for 10 minutes. Uh, But it's funny to watch other parents at the playground, because there are different kinds of parents, right? There are fly-off-the-handle parents, right? They're They're worrying, or they're really angry or something, and when their kid does something they don't want them to do, bam, they're yelling. Instantly, no, like, escalating, right? Just bam, anger. Get off that swing. We're going... And you see these quick trigger parents. But I've also see no trigger parents. You ever see these people? If, if you don't get down, bad stuff's going to happen. And I, I'll sit there for 15 minutes and no bad stuff ever comes. And the kid knows it. The kid knows it. The kid just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing because that parent never pulls a trigger. And they know it. They've got that parent. These are the threatening slow, no trigger or slow trigger parents. Okay? Everybody listen God is not not a fast-trigger parent, okay? God has grace. God is slow to anger. He he gives time. He gives patience. But God is also not a no-trigger parent, okay? God understands that if if you just keep doing what you're doing, it's going to harm you and it's going to harm other people. And at some point, God steps in and gets angry and says enough is enough. God has to do both those things, He's going to be gracious and He's going to be just. He's got to be both those things. And maybe, maybe that's a problem for us. Maybe it's a problem because we're fast to anger or because we don't want God to be angry at us. But that is the nature of God. In fact, we get to the New Testament, it's still the nature of God. God's nature doesn't change. But you know what happens in the New Testament? Instead of God getting angry and taking out the punishment on you, He takes the punishment for Himself. Even in the New Testament, God demands justice. It's just that He goes to the cross and takes on the justice for you. God's nature doesn't change. He's so slow to anger that He takes on the punishment for you. That's the grace. It's not that He's not angry. Okay? It's that the anger is satisfied. And you have the opportunity to have grace because the punishment is paid for you. If you, I, I wish I had time to read a bunch of Nahum. It's only three chapters. I would encourage you to read it a couple of times this week. because it is, It's such great writing. It's really rough. But it's such great, some of the most beautiful poetry in all the scriptures. Chapter 2 is really a description of the siege that's going to take place as Nahum sees it when the people are going to attack. Let me just read a couple of verses. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Um, you just, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. This, this poetic way of, of writing about this siege that's going to take place and take out Nineveh. Chapter three is what's called a dirge. It's a. We don't really mess with this much anymore, but used to be when you had a funeral, you would have a poem or a psalm that might be might collect that moment, right? It might be about the person. It might be a, just about the moment. There were sort of general dirges, but actually, chapter three, when you go read it, is a taunting dirge. It's a it's a rejoicing poem. Okay, it's Nahum before it even happens. Singing this song or saying this poem, at a, like it's a funeral for Nineveh, and it's taunting. It goes, let me read a couple of lines. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. He goes goes on and on about uh, kind of celebrating the loss. And I don't know how I feel about celebrating the defeat of a city. It's kind of an interesting moment, but there was a lot of celebration at the end of World War II, wasn't there. there? Was a lot of celebration um, when the Berlin Wall came down. We can still remember images seen on TV of Saddam Hussein's uh, statue being pulled down in the streets in Baghdad. I mean, there is a sense of justice when wrong things are made right. But if you really want to understand the story, I can't stop there. This all happens. Okay? The Nineveh is destroyed. The Babylonians, are t- or the, the uh, Assyrians are taken over by the Babylonians. Finally happened in 612 BC. And then the Persian Empire takes over. And then the Roman Empire takes over. This sort of empire, empire, empire right in a row there. But the Assyrians lived on. In fact, they were a couple of the frontline warriors in the Babylonian army. They were several units in the Roman army. And they continued to stick around in this area sort of north of, of Iraq. Um, in the first through the third century, so right after Jesus comes and we get this Christian thing, almost all of the Assyrians, over about a 200 year period, almost all the Assyrians become Christians almost all of them become Christians. Even after God's judgment of these people, God still had a plan for these people. They've had periods of great persecution interspersed with great periods of relative peace. When Islam uh, rises to power in the 7th century, it really causes problems for them. Um, they were persecuted. Lots of attempts at ethnic cleansing. Um, interesting, the Assyrians... Because they weren't allowed for most of their history to pronounce their faith or to share their faith with other people. The Assyrians are some of the earliest missionaries we know of. They weren't allowed to share in their own country, so they would send their people out uh, to other places. In fact, when we finally get somebody from Europe over to China, they find Assyrian Christians in China that had been saved generations earlier. uh, Chinese Christians that were saved earlier by Assyrian missionaries. Uh, sometime in their history, they made this tomb of Nahum's kind of a sacred site. And so Christians would worship there, Jews would travel there, and in fact, there were people who were Jewish that never went back. So there have always been Jews and Christians living as sort of part of these Assyrian people. Today, the tomb is in really terrible disrepair. Um, They've had a lot of massacres in the Assyrian people after World War II, the Iranian Revolution, and uh, Saddam Hussein uh, led a big campaign um, to kill a lot of these people or to kick them out. The Syrian civil war. Uh, Most recently, ISIS has uh, really killed a lot of the Assyrians that were still in Iraq. And there's almost none there uh, anymore. In fact, there have been known in the last two years, in the last two years, reportings of beheadings, crucifixions, whole towns murdered and robbed. Um, just in the last two years. A couple of weeks ago, I had a, um, I brought the sheep to worship and uh, for 4th of July, we served communion on it. My dad was a military police chaplain. And uh, these are signatures, it says here, signed by the Christian Iraqi prisoners of war, the prisoner of war camp that my dad was a part of. So my dad is a chaplain. It's his responsibility not just to serve the Christians that were there, but also to serve the Christian prisoners that were part of, uh, of the camp, and so they signed it. And when I posted this online, I was trying to be very careful to not be able to show much of, post a picture. I didn't want to show much of the writing because most of these Iraqi Christians were likely Assyrian the Christians. They're from this line. About all the Christians that are in Iraq are Assyrian, and uh, the chances are good that the names on this sign you will. Know, I, uh, the 11th of March 1991. Um, that this was signed, and the other half of the sheet was given to the other chaplain. Uh, they signed that too for him. Chances are good that a lot of the names on this sheet were Assyrian Christians. Chances are good that a lot of them are not alive anymore. And chances are good that a lot of them, if they are alive, are not in Iraq anymore uh, because they've been kicked out as a family persecuted. That's 91. That's those people. Now, just think about that for a second. That's the people that contract their line back to Jonah prophesying to them. That heard these harsh words from Nahum way back 2,600 years ago. And look, God was not done with them. God was not done with them. And now they're being persecuted, but not because they were cruel. They're being persecuted for Jesus Christ now. Isn't that an amazing, amazing testimony? Do you think God is just an angry God? No, God had grace and purpose for these people even after that judgment. So here's you today. Maybe you're the kind of person that you think God is so angry at you because of all the stuff you've done in your life that God could never really have grace and have purpose for you. You are not as bad as the Assyrians and God is still at work in their lives, and he's got enough grace and got enough love to overcome whatever you've done in your past. But I think I need to end Nahum with a little bit of a warning. If you think you can do whatever you want in this life and live as if God has nothing, and you think God is just going to have grace and never get angry at you, I got news for you, he's slow to anger, but that does not mean he doesn't get angry. And that doesn't mean he doesn't deal with you. Sometimes you have to discipline to bring a child back. And I think God is willing to do that. So wherever you are today, pray for the Assyrians because they are still having a rough time around the world. But look at your own heart today too. Let's pray. Father God, speak to us in this time and in this place. Give grace and healing. And we do remember those Assyrian Christians around the world. That uh, throughout their history, you have been so graceful to. That even as they were judged, you had plans and purposes for their future. May it be so of us also. Amen.